0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh! O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: All right, buddy. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. It's John here. We only have two more Absite episodes left for you to include today's, which is anesthesia. Um, they upcoming in this week will be our high yield image review which you can also find on YouTube uh, as well as the um, do not open until your way to the test uh, program which we review those quick hits right before you walk in. Additionally, if you're looking for more content, check out our YouTube channel. We have a newly revised mnemonic review. We've taken all of the mnemonics that people have used over the, the years and compiled them into one video. Uh, and I found them very helpful from when I took the exam. As always, good luck studying, and Jason, take it away.
0: Okay, welcome back uh, to Behind the Knife's AbSite Review. I hope everybody's uh, studying is going well and they are feeling confident. So we're gonna jump right into it with uh, a brief anesthesia review. So this is anesthesia for the ab site, Of course, not comprehensive, but this will hopefully pick you up a couple points. Uh, So we're going to get rolling. John, uh, so let's talk about the ASA physical status classification for uh, anesthesia. So that's the American Society of Anesthesiologists Physical Status Classification. These are your ASA grades, one through six. So I'm going to give you a patient. You're going to tell me what ASA they are. Okay? Ready? All right, let's do it. Okay, so let's say uh, it's like you, a healthy patient without uh, any disease. I'm not sure if you know that, but
1: that's uh, ASA class one. Jason, how about a patient with mild systemic disease? Uh, has very little impact on daily activity, uh, and likely to have unlikely to have a major impact on anesthesia surgery. So people who have maybe well controlled hypertension, uh, asthma, uh, uh, they are cigarette smokers, but they don't have COPD
0: and maybe mild obesity. So that's uh, ASA class two. And I think what's important there uh, when we talk about these is is this is how it's going to come up on the outside. They're going to give you a patient. They're going to ask you what ASA class. So uh, for ASA two, important caveats to know is cigarette smoking automatically makes you ASA class two, even if you're otherwise healthy and uh, have no other medical problems. And if you're pregnant, that bumps you up to ASA class two as well, as long as those other things that John said. Okay, so John, let's say you have a severe systemic disease that limits normal activity. Uh, so let's say examples include stable angina, uh, it had a prior MI, controlled CHF, um, or a kidney disease.
1: So that would be your ASA
0: class three.
1: Uh, and the, the reason they have these as ASA class three is because these specific systemic diseases can likely have a, an impact on the anesthesia and surgery versus your ASA class two, where they probably won't matter as much. Uh, Jason, for ASA class 4, what are the specific things that go along with that?
0: So class 4 is, uh, this is your severe disease, but it's a threat to life and requires intensive therapy. So this is, will have a major impact on your anesthesiologist. So examples include end-stage renal disease, um, people on dialysis, people who are having an acute uh, myocardial infarction, respiratory failure, requiring mechanical ventilation, unstable angina, uh, those type of things. And I've seen these usually present
1: these patients as they're, uh, a lot of times they're they're urgent patients or emergent patients or patients who are already in the hospital that you need to operate on. So that might become clues to help you guide picking these if you're asked that question. For ASA class five, Jason, what what kind of patients fall in that category?
0: So the definition for ASA class five is basically a, a patient who's dying or is likely to die within the next 24 hours with or without surgery. And and then, and then, John, the last category is a class six. Uh, Very rarely used in uh, in general surgery. I've never seen a question of this, but it's a brain dead or uh, organ donor. And then you add you add E to the end of that to, to indicate uh, emergency surgery. So that's with your four, five, and six. Essentially, um, you know it, it's unlikely that you're going to be doing um, you know uh, surgery on an ASA class four, five, or six unless it is emergent. Uh, you, it, those are patients that need to be uh, heavily optimized before doing an elective uh, procedure on, obviously for for obvious reasons. Uh, okay, John. So let's go through um, the. Uh, uh, ACC, AHA guidelines um, for wrist, cardiac risk stratification for non-cardiac surgery. They break that up into high-risk surgery, intermediate-risk surgery, and low-risk surgery. What, uh, what, what does that mean, and what kind of procedures fall into those different categories? So uh,
1: these, are, these have been asked a few times. So let's start with our low-risk surgeries. These are the, the surgeries who people come in for ambulatory surgery, hernia repairs, Uh, endoscopic procedures any type of superficial lumps and bumps getting taken off cataract surgery uh, and breast surgery also falls under the low risk category and that is reported a risk of cardiac death or non-fatal mi is usually less than one percent in the low risk category jason the intermediate intermediate risk category
0: Uh, So these, again, non-cardiac surgery, intermediate risk would be, you know, your carotid and arterectomies, any head and neck surgery, um, intraperitoneal, intrathoracic surgery, so surgery in the chest or abdomen, orthopedic surgery, uh, prostatectomies, those type of things are all considered intermediate risk. So reported risk of cardiac death or non-fatal MI, 1% to 5% with those intermediate risk procedures. And finally, John, high risk? High risk surgery, essentially all your vascular surgery.
1: Uh, except for cardiac cardiac endarterectomy, so your aortic and other major vascular surgeries, uh, and then also your peripheral arterial surgery minus carotid endarterectomy. And the reason they're high risk because the the risk of cardiac death or non fatal MI is actually
0: quite often. So, John, who needs you're you're seeing somebody in the clinic? You're preparing them for an elective procedure. Who? Uh, how do you identify who needs a cardiac workup? Well, you know
1: how I usually present these patients in, uh, in clinic. You just look at them and you kind of realize, oh, man, that guy needs to see a cardiologist before surgery. But there are actually uh, criteria for this. And so I'm going to read through these. Uh, and uh, a lot of these kind of make sense if you think about them. Uh, so any patient in angina, uh, p- patient with a previous MI, patient has ongoing shortness of breath, heart failure, uh, a patient who can walk to or has to walk less than two blocks um, due to shortness of breath or chest pain. A patient with FEV one less than seventy percent are predicted. Any patient with severe valvular disease. Um, any patient with PVCs greater than five a minute. Any patient with high grade heart block. Uh, if their age is over the age of seventy. Uh, any patient with diabetes, uh, renal insufficiency, renal insufficiency, and then obviously any patients who fall into a high risk category undergoing major vascular surgery, uh, and that includes, remember, your peripheral and aortic uh, prepares.
0: Yeah, so those are good kind of general guidelines for identifying patients that may need that, you know, preoperative risk stratification, um, you know, by either internal medicine or cardiology. And what this is all really doing is kind of assessing the patient's functional status. Because uh, the functional status of the patient is a good predictor of both the cardiac and overall risk of the patient for surgery and hospitalization, and, and when we talk about functional status, we typically talk about it in terms of metabolic equivalents of task or METs. So, John, what, what does that mean? What is a what is a metabolic equivalent of task or a MET?
1: Yeah, MET is an objective measure of the ratio of the rate at which a person expends energy to the person's mass uh, while performing some specific physical activity uh, compared to a reference. Reference, which is set by the conventional 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute, uh,
0: which is equivalent to energy expended while just sitting quietly,
1: such as doing a podcast.
0: So, you know, when I'm seeing a patient in clinic, I'm trying to assess what their functional status is. Um, and I'm typically doing this in terms of METs. So you, you look at what some different examples of seven different metabolic is, and, and a good cutoff, I think, for whether or not somebody needs a further workup or not is four METs. So if they can achieve over four METs, they're, they're it's pretty, you can be pretty confident they're going to be able to tolerate a, a surgery. So when I think about examples of that, so what's less than four METs? So if the patient's unable to walk two blocks on level ground without stopping due to symptoms, um, that's poor so that's an example of less than four mets greater than four mets if the if patient's able to climb uh, one flight of stairs without stopping or walk up the hill up hill one to two blocks without you know getting you know chest pain or shortness of breath uh, that's pretty good so that's a good question that i kind of screen patients with hey are you able to you know walk up a flight or two of stairs uh, without having to stop without getting the shortness of breath or chest pain um, if they answer yes to that, then then I can be fairly confident that they have are able to achieve greater than four mets and are likely going to be able to tolerate. It. Of course, you have to take the whole patient and their um, their other comorbidities and, like John said, you know those other those other things he talked about and kind of the eyeball test as to determining whether or not someone needs a further workup. But that's a good general rule of thumb, and it's a good to be familiar with some different examples of what some different metabolic equivalents are.
1: Okay, Jason, now I want to move into the perioperative complications. So, Jason, what are the two comorbidities associated with the most postoperative hospital mortality?
0: Uh, so, that would be preoperative uh, heart failure and renal failure. And renal failure is actually the number one uh, uh, predictor of postoperative hospital mortality.
1: And one of the things that uh, runs in the perioperative complications is the need for uh, reinnovation, maybe urgently, either on the floor or in the ICU, ICU, and the typical steps that a general surgeon would need to do if they are doing innovation is a rapid sequence, uh, re- rapid sequence induction. So, Jason, can you describe the rapid sequence induction?
0: Yeah, this is a good one to be familiar familiar with, both for real life and for the app side. Uh, the way this question is typically asked is they'll ask you which is the correct sequence, and they'll they'll have A, B, C, D, E. And they'll kind of list these different steps in you know various orders, and you have to pick the one that's in the right order. So, the steps of rapid sequence induction are: number one, oxygenation and short-acting induction agent; number two, muscle relaxant; number three, cricoid pressure; number four, intubation; and number five, the inhalational anesthetic. So, again, oxygenation, short-acting induction agent, muscle uh, rela- relaxation, cricoid pressure intubation and inhalational anesthetic uh john how do you determine that you have uh, in, uh achieved you know you got the tube in the trachea not the esophagus what's the best predictor of that
1: so the best determinant uh between the two trachea and esophage intubation is your
0: end tidal co2 perfect yep that's exactly what the question is going to be that simple on the test uh, you know what's the best determinant end tidal co2 Okay, so, John, let's say you're in a case and anesthesia pokes their head over the table and said that they had a a sudden rise in the entitle CO2. Uh, What's the most common cause of that, and what are you thinking about?
1: So the most common cause is uh, hypoventilation, and you would treat this with uh, increasing your tidal volume uh, and increasing your respiratory rate. Another thing that comes to mind, though, you must be concerned about is, uh, and although very unlikely, is malignant hyperthermia.
0: Yeah, exactly. So a rise in entitled CO two during a case, most commonly due to hypoventilation, common things being common. But the more serious thing that you worry about is malignant hyperthermia. A little bit later we're gonna talk about, you know, how to handle that situation. But conversely, John, let's say anesthesia pokes their head over the over the curtain and they say that they had a sudden drop off of their entitled CO two. Uh, what are you thinking about there? So the most common cause in this
1: situation is actually just dis- disconnection. Uh, of the uh, of the tubing or the off the ventilator. Uh, but then, obviously, you need to be concerned about a CO2 or air embolism. Uh, a CO2 embolism would actually be a transient rise in end-tidal CO2 initially. Uh, it would be associated with hypotension, and then a followed up by a massive drop in end-tidal CO2.
0: Okay, so let's say you're in that situation, and you have the anesthesia just says they're hypotensive, you know, their CO2 went up and then now just dropped off, um, and they're freaking out. What? How do you manage this? So if you're in a laparoscopic case, you stop your CO2
1: insufflation. And this is most likely going to occur during a laparoscopic case. Stop the CO2 insufflation. Allow the abdomen to decompress. Uh, you place the, place the patient in schoen in left lateral decubitus position, uh, so your left side up. Uh, and then hyperventilate with 100% oxygen. Uh, and then if there is a concern, you, a lot of times you'll get an echo or something like that. But also you can aspirate off a central line if there's present. Uh, And if the patient is undergoing, has hypotension, you can start pressors, inotropes. uh, And obviously, if they're coding, then you start your ACLS protocol.
0: Yep, exactly. Again, you stop CO2 insufflation. You place the patient in the uh, Trendelenburg uh, in the left lateral decubitus position. That's called the Durant maneuver. um, And that helps prevent uh, air from traveling outside the right ventricle and prevents an an airlock situation uh, in the heart. Hyperventilate, 100% oxygen aspirate the central line you could try and get that co2 embolus out of there um you know presser you know support them with pressers ionotropes if you need to and cpr Prolong cpr um uh is, is key there okay so moving on let's move into some different uh anesthetic agents um and some commonly asked questions so we'll start with the inhalational agents so uh we, we throw around this term mac all the time uh, john what do we mean when we say uh, mac with regard to inhalational agents so MAC stands
1: for minimal alveolar concentration. It's the smallest concentration of gas at which 50% of patients will not move to painful stimulus.
0: Yeah, and that's a question on the upside. That simply, what's the definition of MAC? So that's 50% of patients will not move to a painful stimulus. Um, what, does, what, is, what are the implications of having a low MAC? What does it mean when a, an agent has a low MAC?
1: So when they have a low MAC, it means that the inhalation agent is more lipid-soluble, uh, which means that it's more soluble, uh, more potent, uh, but has a slower speed of induction.
0: Okay. So low MAC, more soluble, more potent, slow speed of induction. Which agent has the highest MAC?
1: And this is a question I've seen. Uh, nitrous oxide. So it is less lipid soluble. Uh, it is less potent and then has a high speed of induction.
0: Yep. Perfect. Uh, So what situations would you not want to use nitrous oxide?
1: Uh, So once again, this comes up a few times. Uh, Pneumothorax, any patient with a pneumothorax, any patient with a small bowel obstruction, which is important in general surgery. You don't want to be putting them under nitrous oxide when they have a small bowel obstruction. Uh, Or any instance where there is an air-filled body body pocket.
0: Okay, great. Uh, So... Let's talk about uh, some side effects. So halothane um, is one of the more common, uh, not commonly used, but more commonly asked uh, side effects for inhalational agents. What are the side effects of halothane?
1: Yeah, I I have trouble remembering all these a lot, so I tend to review them very close to the time of uh, the test. Uh, But halothane, I think hepatitis, H and H. Halothane also can cause eosinophilia, jaundice, increased LFTs, which goes along with your hepatitis, and it has a high degree halothane high degree of cardiac depression and arrhythmias
0: yep so halothane i think probably the most common there is the is the liver um you know the liver injury hepatitis uh, with halothane uh, is the one that i've seen most commonly asked um okay uh let's anesthesia in kids uh what's what is the best agent for mask induction in, in children
1: i'm not entirely sure why this is but it's jason do you know
0: yeah, I think for several reasons um, yeah, I'm by no means an anesthesiologist But it's used across all ages It's good in kids and adults um, It's pretty uh, It doesn't have uh, uh, It's less uh, it's, it's less noxious it's, It doesn't It has less Associated with less nausea It's quick on It's quick off um, It's pretty well tolerated um, And it's From what I've been told i never had it But I've been told It's pretty sweet smelling Okay, and the last inhalational agent we're going to talk about is isoflurane. Um, what type of procedures do, we do are, are ideal for isoflurane and why?
1: Uh, so these are good for all of our neurosurgery procedures. Uh, it lowers the brain uh, oxygen consumption
0: and it has no increase in ICP. Great. Okay, so let's move on to the intravenous agents. Um uh, so, again, there's some common things that are you just kind of have to know about each of the I, uh, IV agents that are, are frequently asked. So we'll just kind of go through these pretty quickly. So one thing that often comes up is somebody tells you they have an egg allergy. Which IV agent are you not going to use? Uh,
1: so that's propofol. Uh, propofol is very rapid on and off. Uh, I think it's a pretty common agent to use for uh, an intravenous agent. Uh, it can cause and for local sedation as well. Uh, sorry, general sedation. Uh, it can cause hypotension and also respiratory depression as well. Uh, the one thing to note about Propofol is not analgesic.
0: Yeah, so some of these agents are going to have amnestic properties. Some are going to have analgesic properties. Some are going to have both. We'll try and mention those as we go, go through them if we can. But Propofol, quick on and quick off, is used all the time, uh, especially for patients that you need to do like neuro exams on. You need to be able to wake them up for the neuro exam, put them down again pretty quickly.
1: I I think it also is one of those ones that it can actually... Uh, distribute into the fat as well, so you can actually have a propofol uh, syndrome or infusion syndrome after it too. So you can have a prolonged release of propofol if it's used for
0: a long period of time. Great. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. So I guess I'll have to think of a different question to ask you about it. Uh, what is what's one of the you know major side effects?
1: And then propofol also can cause a metabolic acidosis uh, along with the propofol infusion syndrome. It can cause uh, anemia and rhabdomyolysis.
0: Yeah. And that can be often fatal. Um, uh, It takes intensive uh, supportive care.
1: All right, Jason. So uh, which induction agent can cause adrenocortical suppression?
0: Yeah. So that one's uh, etomidate. So etomidate has uh, few hemodynamic changes um, and few cardiac effects. So it's good for for patients that may be a little hemodynamically unstable, but it does can cause adrenocortical suppression. Um, it's often used for patients with heart failure, um, uh, and patients with, uh, angina. Uh, okay, moving on. So John, which induction agent doesn't care- cause any respiratory depression, uh, but can be associated with hallucinations?
1: Uh, so this is a, a drug that's often very used, good use in children, uh, is ketamine, uh, also used in combatant patients as well. Uh, but it's contra- contraindicated, uh, although I think this is controversial now, it's contraindicated in head injury patients uh, due to increased cerebral blood flow.
0: Yeah, I think that's changing. I'm not sure if that's going to show up on the website. That used to be you know, kind of a classic association with ketamine is you can't use it in head injury patients, but there's some data coming out that says that you can. Um, I think it's a great drug. It's an underutilized drug. Um, so... I'm not sure how I would answer that on the outside. Hopefully, they'll steer clear of it. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are giving ketamine in head uh, injury patients uh, now. Um, so, we'll just avoid that for now. Um, how about Presidex? What's Presidex good for? Um, you know, what is it? Why do we use it? Well,
1: Presidex is probably one of my favorite drugs to use, especially in the ICU and patients coming uh, off of uh, uh, coming out of uh, innovation. Uh, it provides anaz- anesthesia and analgesia. Um, it's easy to titrate, and this makes it um, very different than the other ones, the fact that it can actually give you analgesia as well. It's not typically used as an induction agent, um, and then, like I already mentioned, it's good for early exubation protocols or weaning off any sedation.
0: Yeah, it's a great – it can cause a little bit of hypotension, so you have to be careful of that, especially when you bolus it. But it's a pretty amazing to, like, walk into the ICU and see somebody sitting up in a chair, intubated, looking completely comfortable on Prostadex. It's a, a remarkable drug for, drug for um, uh, extubation protocols. Uh, okay, moving on. So we've covered our inhalational agents. We've covered our IV agents. Now let's talk about some paralytics, which are uh, – there's uh, not a whole lot you have to know about these, but there are some commonly asked things. Uh, so one thing that frequently shows up is the order of paralysis of muscles and, you know, when things wake up, up, wake back up. So John, during paralysis, what is the first muscle to be paralyzed and the last muscle to be paralyzed after administration?
1: Yeah. So I, I remember this unless it's easy to remember for everybody else. I remember this is that, you know, anesthesia is working at the head and neck and I'm working down at the belly. So the anesthesia works its way down the belly to me. So the face and neck muscles are the first ones to be uh, paralyzed after administration. And the diaphragm where I'm working is usually the last muscle. Conversely, if you think about when you're coming out of anesthesia, the diaphragm is the first to recover and then the face and neck muscles recover last.
0: That's a pretty good way of remembering it. The way I always remember it is, you know, what muscle do you need to keep you alive? And that's your diaphragm. So that's the one that's going to hang on the longest. That's going to be the last one to be paralyzed. That's going to be the first one to wake up. That's probably easier. So, John, which is the only depolarizing agent that can worsen hyperkalemia? It's a depolarizing agent that causes hyperkalemia.
1: So you should be immediately thinking of Uh So you don't want to use this in burn patients, uh, patients with neuromuscular disorders. Any patient uh, undergoing, that underwent massive trauma or any patient has renal failure with hyperkalemia or uh, predisposing hyperkalemia.
0: So, John, we talked a little bit about malignant hyperthermia. We said we'd talk more about it. So succinylcholine uh, is, uh, can induce malignant hyperthermia, as, along with a number of other agents. But how do we treat this? So malignant hyperthermia is, well, the, the cause of it is
1: is a defect in calcium metabolism that causes a release uh, of a significant amount of calcium from the uh, sarco- sarcoplasmic reticulum. And, Jason, we already talked about this. What's the first sign of malignant hyperthermia?
0: Uh, The first sign, uh, like we we mentioned, is increased uh, end tidal CO2. Now, back to my question, you're you're deflecting. (laughs) How do you treat it?
1: So this is the dantrolene uh, cooling blankets and
0: then obviously continuing resuscitation. Yeah, so massive amounts of dantrolene, um, cooling, blanket, and resuscitation. This is one that's good to go through just from a practical standpoint. I know we did one recently in our hospital, uh, but it's good to kind of go through with your anesthesia provider and have some mock scenarios where everybody knows where the dantrolene is. Everybody knows how to mix it up. Everybody knows how to give it Um, because when it it goes down, which rarely you don't have time to kind of get the instructions out and read them. Uh, Let's talk about, uh, we hear a lot about Hoffman elimination. Um, Why is that important? And what agent is associated with Hoffman elimination, John?
1: Uh, So this is your uh, cis-atricurium. And it can be used, it's used typically in patients with liver and renal failure. And you, you get the metabolism within the bloodstream. So we talked about succinylcholine and cis-atricurium. Jason, how is rockyronium metabolized? And then also
0: talk about pancuronium. Okay, so rocuronium, pancuronium. Um, so rocuronium is, is metabolized in the liver, and pancuronium is uh, metabolized uh, by the kidneys.
1: Do you know a way to remember that at all?
0: So the way I – I don't know how you remember it, but the way I remember it is I just picture the liver as a big rock, so, the liver is a big rock. So, that's rock uranium. And your kidneys make P, which starts with the letter P, which is pancuronium. Do you have another way? Or is that? No, I like that. Actually. All right. Yeah. So, rock uranium, your is a rock. Pancuronium uh, is released in your P. Um,. How do we reverse? So we're talking about these non-depolarizing agents. I don't know if we mentioned that, but you know, succinylcholine is a depolarizing agent. The rest of these are non-depolarizing agents. Um, how do we reverse these non-depolarizing agents?
1: Uh, so that's acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. There is actually a new one, too. I'm blanking on the name of it that they're all beginning to use now.
0: Uh, Jason, do you know the name of that one? I don't. Maybe we should pause the recording and look yeah, that up. We
1: should look that up. One moment.
0: Okay, we are back after the pause that you guys do not hear so that we could look up this new and exciting uh, reversal of some non-depolarizing agents. And, John, what is it?
1: So it's called Sugammadex. I call it the sugar. Uh, it is re- used for, uh, reversal agents and, uh, the non-depolarizing muscle muscular neuromuscular blockages, is
0: Vecuronium and Rocuronium. All right, there you go. sugammadex. It's the first selective relaxant binding agent. All right. That will not be on the app side. <laughs> I can almost promise you, but, uh, it's fun to know anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're done with paralytics moving on. Let's talk about local anesthetics comes up pretty frequently. How do you dose them? You know, which ones you use, how long do they last? So in generally speaking, John, how do local anesthetics work?
1: So this uh, takes us back to medical student days. It blocks the transmission of signals by stabilizing your sodium channels, which increases your action potential threshold. So it increases the, the amount of sodium needed to uh, create an action potential.
0: Okay. So uh, more commonly used ones, bupivacaine, lidocaine, procaine sometimes, not frequently. And talking about how long these local anesthetics last, can you place those in order for me, bupivacaine, lidocaine, procaine?
1: Yeah, so bupivacaine, marcaine, is the the longest-acting one. Uh, Lidocaine lasts the longest after that,
0: and then procaine. Perfect. Okay, so let's talk about some toxicities. This is another thing that frequently comes up. So lidocaine toxicity, what are the first kind of signs that somebody might be leading, going into lidocaine toxicity?
1: So the patient's awake, the first sign would be perioral numbness or tingling, uh, and they would talk about their lips tingling. Uh, Also, you can get CNS-related syndromes, seizures, and then arrhythmias, which is one of the common things they'll ask if if the patient's already on the operating table. And Jason, there's two different types of of local anesthetics, uh, uh, amides and esters. Can you tell us the difference between the two?
0: Yeah, so between uh, meads and esters, uh, esters are the more problematic ones. They're, very, they're not that commonly used anymore, um, and that's due to their – they have a, a PABA analog, chemically speaking – um, and this causes increased allergic reactions and, and other issues. How do you tell it when you're looking at the name of a drug? Because sometimes I'll ask you, John, uh, which of the following list is a, is it a amide or an ester? How do you tell the difference between the two? What's an easy kind of trick? Well, the amides all have an I in the first part
1: of the name and have two I's typically. So lidocaine, bipivacaine, mepivacaine, uh, and like Jason already mentioned, they all have rarely cause allergic reactions. Uh, your esters are your no eyes in the beginning names, the name, so tetracaine, procaine, and cocaine.
0: So, uh, the way I've seen that question asked is they'll give you uh, somebody who has had an allergic reaction. So, they give you a patient that got a local anesthetic and then, and then they have an uh, allergic reaction. They'll say which one was most likely uh, given. And so, it's going to be the ester on that list. So, you'd look at the one without two eyes, the one that's not an amide, the one that's an ester, um, and that's your answer. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about uh, dosing of local anesthetics. I think that the upside is actually getting away from um, uh, a lot of math and a lot of having to figure out dosages of different things. Uh, This is one that might still show up um, because it's pretty easy to do in your head uh, and it's very practical. So what are the doses, um, the maximal doses of the different commonly used local anesthetics, John?
1: So lidocaine itself without epinephrine is uh, five milligrams a kilogram.
0: And how long does that, let's, let's also talk about, you know, the duration. So like you say, lidocaine without epi, max dose, five mgs per kilogram. Uh, yeah. and, then, and then tell me how long they, they, yeah. they last.
1: You can get up to about 60 minutes, 30 to 60 minutes of duration with these. Uh, your lidocaine with epinephrine is uh, a larger dose, seven milligrams a kilogram. Uh, and that duration is up to uh, uh, four hours long. And then bupivacaine or marcaine um, is a smaller dose, three milligrams a kilogram. And you can get uh, local anesthetic effects up to 15 hours.
0: Okay, great. So those are good ones to know. Again, plain lidocaine, five mg per kilogram. Lidocaine with epi, seven mg per kilogram. And then marcaine or bupivacaine is uh, three uh, mg per kg. And then moving on, the next few ones here just kind of talking about
1: the uh, the most common. Uh, we're going to talk about opioids and benzos but these are just very uh, simple questions that you often see, uh, and mostly for, due to side effects. So, uh, for Jason, for the opioids, uh, which opioid is associated with histamine release?
0: Yeah, so that's that's morphine. You get the itching, histamine release from uh, from from morphine.
1: And then what what uh, what is the metabolite of that can cause seizures? Uh, so it's norperidine. Um, um, so normeperidine. And then, obviously, what is the uh, treatment over an overdose of opioids that EMTs are now carrying? Yep. Opioid
0: over- overdose is uh, Narcan. Okay. Moving on to benzos. John, to flip it back on you, uh, which benzo uh, is contraindicated in pregnancy and why? So, Versed is the one that's contraindicated
1: in pregnancy, and it's because it crosses the placenta.
0: Side effects of uh,
1: benzos, what's most common? How do you treat? So the most common is respiratory depression, Uh, and flumazenil, which is a competitive inhibitor, uh, is the treatment of a a, a benzodiazepine uh, overdose. Uh, but then you don't want to use this drug in patients who are, uh, have status epilepticus or any patient who has an increased ICP.
0: That's a great point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But your, your your anecdote or your uh, reversal agent for benzos, flumazenil, reversal agent for opioids, Narcan. Yeah. Easy questions to miss, or easy questions uh, to get a couple easy points on there.
1: And then to wrap it all up, we're going to finish up talking about epidurals and spinals. Uh, And so, Jason, what's the first treatment of a patient who has a uh, a postural puncture uh, puncture headache?
0: So, um, headaches after epidurals, postural puncture headache, um, uh, bed rest. uh, You start with kind of bed rest, uh, uh, some pain medications, uh, fluids. um, And then uh, if that's not working, you can do an epidural blood patch.
1: Yeah, typically you lay them flat and uh, let it see if it works. And about after 24 hours, if it's still not getting better, then you want to consider the epidural blood patch. Uh, what uh, what can morphine uh, cause in an epidural? If you're giving it an uh, epidural, I mean.
0: Okay, yeah. So if you're adding, you know, so if you have an epidural, it's important to kind of communicate with anesthesia as to whether or not you want them to add in a um, uh, an opioid as well, because it can be it can cause some respiratory depression if that's in your epidural.
1: And we also use lidocaine in epidurals as well. And what kind of side effects can this cause? So uh,
0: this is where you can see um, uh, hypotension um, and bradycardia. Uh, so it's important to know if you have you know, a patient that you just did a big whack on and they have an epidural and they're dropping the pressures. A lot of times they'll ask anesthesia to come turn it down, turn it off, adjust it. So you can distinguish whether or not it's the epidural causing that or whether your patient's bleeding. So it's important to know that side effect. And finally,
1: uh, if you're having a patient with hypotension that is not you know, treated, which is turning the epidural down, you still continue to have the, the, the problems uh, related to the lidocaine,
0: what is the presser that we would like to use? So the presser to treat hypotension related to the epidural. Once I would say uh, the caveat that you have to be sure that that's what's causing your hypotension. So make sure you rule out bleeding or other causes of hypotension in a postoperative patient. But if you're confident that it is purely your epidural, you want to go with something that's a peripheral vasoconstrictor. So that's your phenylephrine. All right. I think that wraps it up. That's our anesthet- anesthesia review for the ab site. Uh again everybody. I hope that uh, studying is going well. I am completely confident that everybody listening out there is going to dominate the ab this year. Uh, so uh, take a break, go outside, get a little bit of uh, exercise, come back in and let's get started uh, with the next one. Uh, thanks for listening to Behind the Knife.